and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. And I'm Allie. And today we are continuing with new episodes. Yay! Um, tonight's a little different, so we're going to jump in and do a little bit of an exploration of the Commonwealth. And this is going to touch on monarchs we have covered in past episodes. So I think this will be a good topic of discussion, but also if you want to revisit some of those episodes, this is a really good touching off point because we know everybody has a lot of time to kill these days. So, and the the context in which we're discussing them today is not a context that we really touched on at all in our previous episodes. Yeah, in fact, we could honestly be accused of having glossed over. Some we of really could. Um, I mean, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're you know we're talking about the Commonwealth today, but before we get into that, we do have a little bit of brief gossip to cover, only because um, this almost functions like a footnote. For our episode on the abdication of King Juan Carlos in Spain. And that's because he announced this week that he is going into self-imposed exile. Which is quite a medieval concept, wouldn't you say? I know, I'm like imagining him rowing out to his isolated island. (laughs) Well, I thought it was so interesting that he used that term. Because it seems like, honestly, it does... It does bring to mind kings and queens and monarchy and all of that, but it is a really antiquated approach to a very modern problem of fraud and embezzlement and investigation by the government. So it's, it's a really fancy way of saying I'm fleeing the country because I don't want to get arrested. Um, right. Which is my interpretation of it. But I wanted to cover this because this has hit a lot of mainstream papers. This isn't really a gossip item. In fact, I was reading about it in Politico and I thought, wow, this is like, this is blowing up. Um, That particular article focused on how it's bringing into stark contrast about how a lot of, um, there's a lot of Republican sentiment in Spain right now. You know, their monarchy is really odd. We haven't really talked about the monarchy that much, but, you know, they were you know, the monarchy was ended and then brought back. So I don't know how easy it would be to get rid of it a second time. I think when they brought it back, they made it much more difficult. Um, I think it could be done by a referendum or something like that. But um, anyway, a lot of people are talking about that because as we talked about in his episode where he stepped down, there were a lot of allegations of financial wrongdoings and sort of shady behavior. And, um, you know, that's kind of continued and it's now blowing back on King Felipe, who's now being accused of having maybe indirectly profited from his father's wrongdoings, even though he came out and said, I'm, I'm not going to take an inheritance from my father, Um, I I want nothing to do with any of this. You know, I think it's hard to argue that if your father for a long time has been at least partially funding your lifestyle that you haven't benefited in some way. So I just thought that was like a really interesting development because we just a couple episodes ago covered his abdication. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, it, it does feel like this really dramatic step to say I'm going into exile. I think what it really means for real terms, is he's fleeing the country to avoid facing charges on his wrongdoing. And I think it means he does not ever plan to return. Yes, and it's not clear where he went. I was trying, we were just talking about that. I was trying to find 
where he went. I think he probably isn't going to announce it. I'm going to guess it's somewhere without an ex- extradition treaty right. with Spain and um, and somewhere where he can, you know, have a lot of support from his nefarious friends. So I, I don't know where that is in the world, but, um, you know, it could be Florida for all we know. So um, interesting developments there. We're not going to spend too much time on this because we have a big outline to get through but um I just wanted to bring that up and if you missed our episode on Juan Carlos I wouldn't be surprised because that's the episode that I forgot to post about on Instagram um although I did remedy that situation but we do have an episode that goes into the details of why he abdicated in favor of his son in the first place uh it's called the rain in Spain if you're wondering which is one of my titles I'm most proud of (laughs) (laughs) it was a great pun all right well Thanks for that little bit of gossip update. Um, so let's move into the main meat of this episode. And I I really want to <laughs> preface this episode with a few caveats. One, we are talking about a bit of a weighty topic today, and it's a, a more serious angle in some ways than we usually take in our episodes. It's a fraught subject. It's to do with a lot of heavy topics that are being discussed globally and especially nationally in the U.S. at this time. Even though we are talking about the British government and ruling family, um, so I want to just say off the bat, like our intentions are really pure, and all we're trying to do here is bring up an angle about monarchy that we often don't discuss. I mean, we're gonna get into a history of several monarchs that we have talked about before and not even mentioned their involvement. Um, One of whom was just our last episode. Yes, and we didn't even mention like their involvement with slavery, So, uh, which is the topic we'll be talking about today. So I think it's important for us to cover this because I want to be really clear, we aren't blind to the dark side, if you will, of monarchy, and we cover it more out of an interest in what a fun way to look at history. You know, it's such a novelty to being from America to have this concept of monarchy. We ask the question frequently of, what is the point of monarchy? Why does it continue to exist? Um, and I think when you're asking those questions, you really need to look backwards and ask, how did they come to this point? And that history, as we've covered before, is very bloody in many ways, um, but it's also built off the backs of exploitation and racial subjugation and, yes, slavery. And so we will be talking about that today. And just prefacing all of that with our intentions are purely just to cover that and not necessarily to proclaim any opinions um, as to the right or wrongness of the current state of things, but that we're just trying to kind of cover both sides of the coin, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about the fun side, the intrigues and the jewels, but, you know, like to Allie's point, we're we're not rabid fans and we're aware that there's a really dark history. And and I think we should point out what brought this up. So I read an article in Slate by, um, I think you have it here at the bottom, um, by Brooke Newman that was talking about the British royal family's role in the British slave trade. And I brought it to Allie's attention and I said, do you think this is something that we should cover? Because I it's every, sing, every single monarch mentioned in... The article has been covered on our podcast. So look, we're, we're giving this very long rambly intro at the beginning to say, if this isn't your jam, don't listen, but we think it's a worthwhile subject. And 
on the in the accident that we offend someone in some way like we just let us know why and like you know I think this is a moment for all of us to step outside of ourselves and learn and and really dig into a challenging of everything so um you know I pure intent but you know recognizing that we are also two two women of privilege talking about about a, a history of people who did not have the same privilege I mean well a lot of these people did obviously they were royal but the the people they were oppressing and exploiting did not so um it's tricky to talk about but we'll do our best Let's jump in with both yes. feet. Yes, <laughs> that said, let's jump in. Um, here we go. So yes, Claire, you brought this article to my attention. I think you originally thought we could just mention it as, hey, check this out, really good take on um, the royals' history with oppression and slavery. And I immediately saw it and said, no, this needs to be a full episode because I immediately made this connection of this history of slavery. I think the episode or the, excuse me, the article is called Throne of Blood. Um, very Game of Thrones sounding title. Um, and, but I could see the through lines to the Commonwealth today, which is a subject that the royals frequently bring up themselves. And people tend to ask as, you know, as well as why does monarchy exist? Why does the Commonwealth exist? What is the purpose? And there is a lot of criticism that it's just a veiled continuation of their more imperial past. And so I want to talk about all of that today and hopefully we'll make a coherent um, argument of how they they all evolved into the Commonwealth. And so, yeah, that's, that's our stated goal for today. Um, because we do, like I said, we do hear a lot about the Commonwealth in context of the British royal family. I mean, it's a it's an institution that covers 54 nations, but when you talk about the Commonwealth, I think the first thing you think about in particular, the first person might be Queen Elizabeth, right? Because her full title includes the title of head of the Commonwealth. And it was decided in 2018 that Charles will succeed her in that role. Um, and in addition to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex um, either were and may still be, I'm not clear on that. Um, they were president and vice president of the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. They are, I believe, I believe they do still hold those positions, but I believe they're no longer considered the youth ambassadors. Okay, so Harry was also named a youth ambassador. Um, so the Commonwealth Trust is not officially part of the Commonwealth organization, but it is a side organization that was started on behalf of the queen as, from what I can tell, like a funding organization and resourcing for the youth in the Commonwealth. And this is really important because 60% of the population of the Commonwealth is under the age of 30. Um, really? So not insignificant involvement in what they're doing. And the royal family themselves, they love to bring up the topic of the Commonwealth when discussing their purpose, their reason for being, especially in the global context. And you'll see this symbolically recognized through events like Commonwealth Day, which is an annual event held at Westminster Abbey in March, I believe, and is attended by all the senior royals. You might remember in terms of gossip, this year was the occasion of the return of Harry and Meghan to the UK. They also, when the royals go on royal tour, they tend to go to Commonwealth countries. So Harry and Meghan notably went to Australia 
and then I believe Tonga and uh, um, I don't remember the other location, but they were all countries within the Commonwealth. So they really focus on this in their quote, like outreach. Um, and then you'll even see it on royal wedding days. Um, notably, Megan's veil was embroidered with the signature flowers from all 54 member countries. So they really lean into this, which, you know, it might at first glance all sound great and inclusive. Like there's this great organization that's purely promoting like world peace, but it's also a very fluffy spin on what is actually an incredibly brutal past. So let's dive into that past. And the first place I want to start is this, I'm, I'm borrowing very heavily from this article in Slate, so I would recommend reading it if you're interested. Um, but that article mostly covered the history of slavery and the royal enabling of the slave trade in Britain. And the roots of the Commonwealth are very clear in that they're, in the, they're clearly set in the former British Empire, um, but I would also argue that going back even further, the empire formed as a way to keep the resources that Britain had formerly gained through slavery. And make no mistake, the British royals were historically very much on board with slavery and benefited enormously from the industry, which is not a great look when you're going back. You might recognize, as we mentioned, a few familiar names from previous podcast subjects, uh, starting off with Queen Elizabeth I, you know, the biggie in history. Um, she was very enthusiastic in her support of early slaving efforts in England. These were notably led by John Hawkins. So he was not the first Englishman to participate in the slave trade, but he did set the precedent in the 1560s for what would become the English slave triangle. So what this was was essentially the route that ping-pong between England, Africa, and the New World. Um, and of course, he's joining other already established European slave trades like the Dutch and the Portuguese. Um, and so what would happen is English goods would be brought for trade to West Africa. While there, slaves would be captured and then sent on the notorious Middle Passage across the Atlantic. And then once in the New World, the goods and cargo that are produced in the New World often by slaves, were transported back to England. And then you just repeat this cycle. And these missions were so profitable that after his second mission, Her Majesty awarded him with a coat of arms featuring a nude rope-bound African. So there was no subtlety here as to what the trade was that he was profiting in and the queen's approval of his she's, methods. She's all in. She's all in. Yeah, he was making England a lot of money. And don't forget, and so, like I think we should we should take the time here. Elizabeth is credited with ushering in a golden age. Yes, to Great Britain, and you know, built an armada and a lot of wealth. And this is a big reason why. Yep, this is one of the sources of that wealth. This is just the beginning. So, I mean, this is the 1560s, so it's the early days for England. By the time we get to King Charles II, the slave trade in England is thriving at this point, and he expands it even more. So during his reign, the crown heavily invested in the lucrative trade, mostly because if you remember back to our episode about Charles I, who was Charles II's father... Charles I famously overthrown and beheaded and replaced by Oliver Cromwell and 
a brief intermission in England's monarch history. Charles II eventually is restored to the throne as as king, but the country has gone through civil war. They've emptied their treasury, presumably, in the process. And so as a way to bolster the wealth and power of this newly restored monarchy, and crucially to provide a revenue stream independent of parliament, Charles grants a charter to a company known as the Company of Royal Adventurers into Africa, and he promises a thousand-year monopoly on West African trade. And the main beneficiaries of this charter and this company are members of the peerage or members of the royal family. So this is almost completely a royal effort. So they, they're owning this. They're owning this. And this is a revenue stream that bypasses the government and bypasses the you know allowance of the government and is just going direct to the pockets of the royals. So this is like post-monarchy being completely independent. At this point, they were... Not, not to the extent of George III, but at this point they were reliant on a little bit of handouts from, yes. the, from Parliament and all of that. So this is a way to circumvent that. Right. It's not the civilist, but I mean, Parliament is still controlling the purse strings. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in 1663, a new charter granted by Charles grants the royal adventurers, the exclusive right not only to trade in West Africa, but the exclusive right to purchase enslaved captives along the West African coast for transport to the Americas. So very significantly and specifically calling out their monopoly on the trade of humans. Um, And by 1672, for various reasons, the royal adventurers had dissolved over bad debts, but not to worry because a new charter for the Royal African Company of England was granted by Charles. So he's just replacing one with another. Um, And I want to bring this up because this particular company is historically extremely significant in the in the context of the slave trade because they would ship more enslaved African women, men, and children to the Americas than any other single institution during the entire period of the transatlantic slave trade. They're all bad guys, but these guys are contributing the most to the movement of people from Africa to the New World. They don't put this in the history books. No, I had actually never really heard that. And and to be honest, I I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later when we get to like abolition. In the history books, I always learned that Europe was so enlightened about, you know, um, abolition, right? Like they abolished slavery well before we did here, but they they definitely started the slave trade and it had gone on for centuries at this point. So it doesn't absolve them. And this does not end with Charles. So King James II, um, while he was still the Duke of York, um, he actually serves as the governor of the Royal African Company um, from its founding. So this is the new charter. Um, And it was also its largest shareholder. In another just stamp of approval by the royals, there's a literal stamp where the company permanently would mark the bodies of the enslaved with a royal stamp of approval in that captives were branded on the right shoulder or breast with the letters D-Y for Duke of York or R-A-C-E for the Royal African Company of England. In case you had any Um, doubts. Right. And what an acronym. Um, And during the peak years of the Atlantic slave trade, so between 1690 and 1807, so roughly 100 years here, 
almost half of the approximately 6 million enslaved Africans brought to the Americas arrived in British or Anglo-American ships. Um, And these ships were protected by the crown and parliament, and the slave trade became one of Britain's most profitable industries. So by the time we get um, from King James II all the way to King George III, who we, like, as you mentioned, we literally just talked about him last week, um, the question of abolition is starting to come up. You know, public sentiment is shifting a bit away from the slave trade, but crucially, it is not shifting in the minds of the royals. So public sentiment and royal sentiment are starting to diverge, Um, but the king and his sons are pro-slavery, and so this aids efforts to delay abolition in Britain for almost 20 years. You know, they're using their power and influence to keep the abolition movement in the minority or at least out of the hands of the powerful as you could imagine, was not difficult to do. I mean, this is the royal family dealing with the power, the power brokers and the money and, you know, probably making the, the argument of, well, you know, it's just a minority of the public who don't like this, so let's keep it going. Um, so they're not, they're not increasing the trade, but they're actively working to stop efforts to end it. Um, and so King George III, um, I believe his grandson is William IV. He witnessed slavery firsthand in Jamaica when he was the first royal to visit Britain's American colonies. And he approved of what he saw. He had no moral objections to it. Um, and his first speech in the House of Lords as the Duke of Clarence was against abolition. So the royal family at this point, at least the important members, vocally against abolition, although there are members by this point who are vocal opponents of the slave trade. Um, And during the reign of William IV, actually, in 1807, British Parliament outlawed the slave trade. But I want to (laughs) really point out the what that actually means. So it was now illegal for British subjects to participate in the slave trade, but demand was still extremely high and an illegal trade continued to flourish with Other European slavers would transport captives in ships that were built, financed, or outfitted in Britain. So it's like a little bit like, oh, this is illegal, we don't support this, but you're still kind of providing a crucial component of the trade. So it's outlawed, but not technically ended. Right. Um, And I also want to note that it's illegal for British subjects, but it's, and, and it's illegal in Britain, but it wasn't until 1833 that slavery was actually officially ended in the British Caribbean, Mauritius, and South Africa with the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. Yeah, I mean, they're playing fast and loose with what counts. Yeah. Because it's hard, like, it's, you know, and this is one of the things that people argued about for so long was the slave trade was so profitable for the people that were involved that a blanket ban, you know, we talk about today, like, corporations lobbying the government, you know, one example, not to compare this to slavery, but, you know, people talk about everybody should have free health care. And it's like, well, the insurance companies make so much money off of health care in the United States, and they have spent so much money on lobbyists that it's really, really difficult to change the system. And this is a similar thing where, you know, even though you're talking about something so reprehensible, they were making so much money that, you know, like in the history of the world has trumped everything. 
I mean, I think, I think of it a bit like how we lament the the influx of drugs from Mexico, but we provide arms to the drug lords in Mexico, right, right. which is lucrative for the manufacturers of weapons. So, right. I mean, it's a certain point where when you're making a certain amount of money, it's really hard to make any kind of moral argument against it. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's really easy to pay lip service to abolition, but it's really clear from what you're describing here that the sentiment wasn't really behind it at the, at the you know, for a while. Right. And I, I, I don't really know specifically like what commerce looked like at the time, but I would imagine it was probably easier to gain ground on abolition when you have other revenue and commerce streams coming in and you know, this moral objection can start to take more of a center stage when it's not the full income stream for the country. I mean, this sounds so callous to be talking about it this way, and I don't want to give the impression that I agree with that. I I mean, there's no lens, I think, that you can look through this and be like, no, that was okay. No, of course it wasn't. Um, but I think that's exactly the same situation that happened here in the United States, right? And the reason we had an entire civil war, no matter what you might be taught in school or learn about, oh, it was due to states' rights or whatever. No, the war was fought over the right to own slaves. And the reason states left the Union over the right to own slaves is because it was the absolute linchpin of their economy. It was how they made money. So, right. Well, I mean, it even, goes back to the founding even, of our nation. I mean, they didn't yes. abolish slavery because they needed the support of the yes. colonies that were thriving off of slavery. And then yes. when you look at in the initial, I mean, you know, the three fifths compromise is literally that a slave would be considered three fifths of a person because mm-hmm. the Southern colonies fought for that because they, otherwise their population would have been much smaller. And when you're talking about representation, they didn't want them to be fully represented, but they wanted them to count. So, I mean, our, our own nation has a gross history with this, obviously. Um, but but these men all came from American, um, from British colonies for the most part. So the point I'm trying to make is that this sentiment of abolition already existed when America was formed. But as you say, it's just this the trade and the economy and the the widespread acceptance of it prior to that was massive and took a ma- took a massive overhaul. Yeah, and and unless and, and should you be thinking, oh, the union was morally upright in their rejection of slavery? No, the union had a diverse economy that could afford not to exactly employees not not employees <laughs> entirely the wrong word not to rely on slavery. Well, at the time, um, most of the manufacturing was in the north. Right. um, And had that not been true, I'm not sure their attitude on slavery would have been much different from the South. Right. And it's funny, like you mentioned, you know, Europe was ahead of us in that, but they also had, like you say, a more diverse economy. And I think it's really easy at this time, if you're a monarch, to stand up there and say you don't need slavery. Because to be honest, and I know you're going to get there, but, you know, when Victoria supports abolition... I don't think she had a clue at the extent of it. Right. And and there is a question. So I have a couple of discussion questions for us at the end. And one of them I really want to discuss is the role of the monarch in, in the context of all of this. I mean, I think 
historically, we can see monarchs are directly involved in launching and increasing the slave trade in, in Britain. But by the time you're talking about ending it, I do wonder how much power they truly had beyond public sentiment. Right. Um, and the public sentiment angle is where Victoria is going to come in. And so it wasn't until well into the reign of Queen Victoria that the royal family publicly supported abolition for the first time. I mean, Victoria becomes queen only four years after this Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. Um, so it's relatively new. And, and up until then, you know, William IV isn't exactly getting up there and publicly supporting abolition. And I want to also call out the fact that it wasn't Victoria who started this. So in May of 1840, Prince Albert became the president by invitation, so it wasn't his idea, of the Society for the Extinction of the Slave Trade and for the Civilization of Africa. Um, I also want to call out, I think the end of that name is incredibly condescending and paternalistic, um, but that was how they thought of it at the time. Um, and a month after this, he delivers a speech at the first anti-slavery convention in London, and the people took his remarks at this convention as reflective of the Queen's views. It's entirely possible that's true. I mean, they were very much in sync, but he's the one making the public declaration against slavery. It's not actually the monarch. And that might have been a strategic decision on their part, that if you delegate this decision to Albert or this declaration to Albert, it doesn't reflect on Victoria if it goes badly. I'm, I'm doing conjecture here. I didn't read anything that would prove that, but I do wonder at the decision to have it be Albert and not Victoria, whereas if Victoria had stood up and publicly supported abolition, that would have been a very strong statement. Well, have you ever seen the show Victoria on PBS? No. They cover this, and it's portrayed as Albert is bored and sitting around and doesn't have anything to do. Because his wife is busy, <clears throat> excuse me, his wife is busy being queen and he's trying to figure out what his purpose is. And he gets an invitation to come speak at this society and he almost like accidentally stumbles into supporting abolition. Um, so I think the point the show was maybe trying to make was don't give him too much credit. Okay. And I'm not. No, no, <laughs> I really no, want to no, say no that. I know you're not. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I think, you know, Victoria later took it and ran with it a little more, but the point I'm trying to make is there was a vocal minority about this, and Albert kind of fell into their cause, and, you know, he agreed with it, but it wasn't like he was out there beating the drum on his own, and I think that's kind of how it was at the time, like, these people that were, you know understood intellectually and morally that it was wrong, you know, weren't necessarily out there marching in the streets over it, um, unless the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. So, um, and I wanted to really talk about this stance of Victoria and Albert because they are the monarchs, especially Victoria, who I want to use the word reform in quotes, but they are the ones who get the credit for reforming this, this, position of the royal family on the concept of slavery and transitioning the country from, you know, participating in a slave trade into colonialism and empire. I mean, Victoria didn't start the British empire, but she might be the monarch that's most closely associated with it. I think particularly because she 
styled herself Empress of M India. But over the course of their reign, they did gain this reputation for being humanitarian reformers who did move Britain away from pro-slavery and also supposedly away from racist attitudes, especially in the royal family. But it's not to say that their, quote, reforms were entirely without harm because they also oversaw the expansion of this empire that is built on racial subjugation and, quote, civilization, going back to Albert's uh, presidency of the civilization of Africa, um, of non-Western peoples. And Victoria herself had personal relationships with at least two people from British-occupied lands that were, to say the least problematic and also arguably convenient like PR props, right? For her progressive attitude. I didn't go too much in detail on those because I just don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but the important thing is that they gain this reputation for being humanitarian reformers, but they're also celebrating Britain's expansion and rule essentially over what they would consider non-advanced societies, which isn't exactly progressive. Um, and during her reign, the British Empire officially expanded to include what became known as the Crown Jewel, which was India. Um, in 1858, the Government of India Act officially dissolved the East India Company, and the British government took over direct control, establishing the British Raj. And Victoria, as I mentioned, was crowned Empress of India. And so the people under empire rule were technically free and that they weren't slaves, but that doesn't mean that they were treated fairly or well, or even had, you know, a great quality of life under British rule. Um, for example, over 15 million people died in a series of famines on the subcontinent of India in the late 19th century, and it took until the early 1900s for the British Raj to implement meaningful changes to help prevent these famines. And you know, I read this and I thought immediately of what we talked about in our episode on Victoria, you know, the example of her and her government's sort of casual attitude to the famine in Ireland. And I kind of feel like there's a pattern there, you know, like they're, they're, they're ruling over these lands and happy to, you know, sort of put them on their belt, so to speak, but they're not willing to treat the people who live there as, as worthy of compassion and humanity. Right. I mean, the Irish were considered as lower than Englishmen. And, you know, when you look at the people in India, it's even worse. And I think it's the problem with a country like Great Britain is that you expand your empire, but they're they're so small and isolated that they, I don't think they ever looked past their own borders to worry about whether or not anything they were doing out in the outside world was causing harm. They were just concerned about their bank accounts and, you know, the next parliamentary election. Right. And this is what I mean by replacing slavery, essentially, with colonization, that they're still getting the economic benefit. They're just doing it in a morally more acceptable way and a more, like, I guess, a way that gives them more global power. But it's not... It's, it's marginally it's plausible better. plausible deniability. Than, you can right, say exactly. you're not subjugating anybody, but real, in reality, you are. Right. They're my beloved subjects, not people that I'm allowing to starve to death. It's, right. And it's, we'll count them as people. Yeah. But that's, that's where we'll end our consideration of them. Exactly. Um, and so as you can imagine, as the world moves on, this attitude is not 
it's not one that's going to continue um, and certainly not past the early um, 20th century, especially the years of World War One and World War Two were a time of great upheaval. I mean, not just for the British Empire, but the Russian Empire. I mean, we've covered a lot of this, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The world is essentially breaking apart and reorganizing. And one of the driving forces of this is this anti-imperial, anti-colonial attitude that is swelling up amongst not only oppressed peoples, but, you know, educated peoples, you know, you have the rise of Marxism and all of this. And it's all coming out of these centuries of essentially oppression by monarchs and, and, and a recognition that this doesn't really work for everyone and we can try and do something about it. Um, and Britain is not immune. So in the years after World War II and up to 1997, the British Empire was fully dissolved. The post-war era saw the start of decolonization with the rise of anti-colonial movements. I want to make note of the fact that Britain's extrication from their colonies was gentler than other European nations by comparison. Um, you know, Portugal and France had a series of extremely bloody wars um, as their colonies tried to gain independence without the permission of their mother country. So... Britain had a slightly different approach, which was aided in part by the Cold War. Um, so essentially, as anti-communism is really on the rise in the West after World War II, um, especially as the U.S. and Russia are vying for world domination, the anti-communist cause wins out over anti-imperialism. So the U.S. continues to support the British Empire as a way as a buffer to keep communism from spreading. Um, but as I mentioned, I mean, all of these movements are rising up at the same time. And so this anti-colonialism is still happening and still growing around the world. And so Britain's approach was that once a colony had a stable non-communist regime in place, that was key, um, their, their, their stance was peaceful disengagement. So um, beginning with India in 1947, saying, "Okay, you have a government in place, and they're not communists, and you want to rule. We're gonna, we're gonna leave." And the last of these was Hong Kong in 1997, um, which was also its most populous territory. So I remember when, that, right? I do too. And when Britain handed over Hong Kong to China, um, they no, they, they were, were independent for a while, weren't they? Well, they handed them over to China with the understanding that Hong Kong would remain mostly independent and retain their way of life for 50 years. Um, we might be looking at the calendar and doing the math on that, and um, China's about 20 years too early. Right. They, just, they got tired of waiting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's a different story entirely. But Hong Kong was the last one, and about 3 million people were living in Hong Kong at the time. Um, so it was a big chunk. Um, and I, I did just want to circle back to just this time period that you're talking about, you know, in the years after World War II. Um, you know, don't exempt the United States from this because, you know, our you can go back and listen to our episode on the Hawaiian Islands. Yes. But this, like, early 19th century and up until, you know, obviously by World War II, it was um, a little bit you know, we'd already taken them over <laughs> for the most part. But, um, you know, we're we're sort of engaging in our own colonialism and then turning around and saying, hmm, we, we don't really think that's great. Like, you know, we had sort of stepped back. But I think it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, the British Empire took longer, but 
I, I don't know. I guess I'm just bringing that up because if, if you listen to that episode, we talk a little bit about the American role and colonization of the world and our own quote unquote manifest destiny. And um, it, it just, it really is just slavery in another form. Yeah, and I, I, I mentioned I, this isn't quite in a royal oops. I guess this is a different way of thinking about it. But I did mention okay, India is the first colony in 1947 um, to gain independence. That's not actually technically true. So in the 1800s, Canada and Australia and New Zealand all gained independence. But I'm not bucketing them in the same way because I think when we talk about the independence of Australia and Canada versus the independence of India, these are very different things, right? You know, by the time of their, um, I mean, their formation was, yes, like Australia was formed as a penal colony and especially after Britain lost America, but um, the people there were mostly white. And so the attitudes towards those colonies was very different than the attitudes towards India, Hong Kong, et cetera. And I, and I bring that up because I really want to keep that delineation. It is, it is separate. Yeah. It is separate because this this is going to dovetail into our conversation about the Commonwealth because um, when we think about the problematic nature of the Commonwealth, I, I really want to not lose sight of the racial attitudes that color the history of this. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, think, I think you should point out that it's no coincidence that Canada, New Zealand, and Australia were considered capable of ruling on their own yes. well before any of the other colonies and the obvious glaring difference is the color of the skin of the subjects within those colonies. Yeah. Um, and the attitudes towards that. I don't think you need to circumvent that. And I think it's worth pointing out. Yeah. Although I do fun fact that I learned in researching this episode, um, that it was not until the eighties that Australia and Canada, um, could actually make changes to their constitutions without clearing it with the British government, which feels really recent. It does feel very recent. (laughs) Like, I'm sure they didn't have to, like, I'm sure it was just, like, a casual, like, hey, FYI, and, like, they weren't going to really stop anything, but I thought that was really funny. (laughs) It's like, wow. I think think it's kind of like how the queen is supposed to approve the prime minister. And and also I think it's, that's not insignificant in that I think there's a very clear pattern here of Britain quote, like, seeding power, but keeping their fingers in the pie, too, you know? Um, And I also want to be really clear when I talk about this peaceful disengagement that was the policy of Britain, um, it does not mean, it means that Britain's intentions were peaceful, like they were going to allow independence, but it really does not mean that it was always peaceful or nonviolent for the native populations. Um, Notable examples I want to bring up are the violent partition of India and Pakistan, Um, which the British just basically left in their wake. The Arab-Israeli War of 1948 admits the British withdrawal from Palestine and the Suez Crisis of 1956 as dramatized on the crown as Britain is reluctantly giving up their influence in Egypt. Um, And Kenyan independence was preceded for eight years by the Mau Mau uprising with tens of thousands of people interred in camps by the colonial government. Um, And the Declaration of Independence in 1965 by the white minority in Rhodesia resulted in a civil war that didn't end until the formation of Zimbabwe in 1980. So the intent might have been peaceful, but I think that just meant a removal of the military and colonial power in these places and 
no interest in structure or anything beneficial left behind. And so, again, I think this is what we kind of started to discuss with Australia and Canada, but this era of decolonization also didn't mean a full relinquishment of influence. Um, As Britain moves away from direct control of these former territories, many opted to join the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth was well-established before World War II um, as an organization that was begun once Australia and Canada gained their independence. Um, because once, you know, they go, I'm imagining them like calling up Britain. Of course, that doesn't happen. There's no phones at this point. But, you know, they're, they're making their intentions known for independence. And the government of Britain says, okay, you can be independent and rule, but the queen is still going to be your head of state. And, you know, as we mentioned, there are still going to be restrictions on your ability for self-governance. And so what came out of that was this idea of as more and more countries under the British empire are starting to gain this pseudo independence, they are forming what they call the Commonwealth of Nations. Um, And it went through several iterations over the years, especially Um, during this time after World War II when more and more countries are technically leaving the empire but joining the commonwealth. It's kind of like moving from one status to another. But like in my mind, I don't know how much, like other than political oversight, I'm not sure how much of a separation it truly was. And Britain today retains sovereignty over 14 territories outside of the British Isles, which are known as the British Overseas Territories, or within the Commonwealth, they're known as Commonwealth Realms. And the difference would be like the independent nations are known as Commonwealth Republics. Um, of these 14 territories, though, three are uninhabited. So like that includes their territory in Antarctica and stuff like that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like like adding it to your tally where you're like, yeah, but like, what is that? <laughs> so they um, have like a six foot stretch of Antarctica that no one yeah. can set foot on. Okay. There's like islands that they use for scientific research and testing and, and all of that. They're just yeah, well, strategic they have the Falklands holdings. still, right? Yes, they still have the Falklands. Um, that's another example of a extrication that, or actually they still retain it, but that, you know, they still retain territory in a few places where other countries are claiming ownership. So the Falklands would be one where Argentina is claiming ownership ownership, and then Gibraltar, which is off the southern tip of Spain, where Spain is, um, they still have that, but Spain would like to own it. Still in dispute, right? Yeah. I mean, not, not like active war, but like the ownership is not agreed upon. I distinctly yeah. remember. So I, I just remember when we went there when we were kids and at the time, So our father is retired military, and at the time, you could travel around Europe on a military ID. You did not need a passport, which sounds crazy to say. Well, you could travel around Western Europe. Well, yes, Western Europe as an American with a military ID. You didn't need a passport. We had passports, but but he was not allowed to go to Gibraltar because it was disputed territory, and you needed a passport. Right. So, and we decided to go to Gibraltar during siesta. Yes, and he didn't have anything to do for two hours. So he sat out on the street with a newspaper while everything shut down for the afternoon. But I just always remember that. That always sticks out in my mind as like we were in my, you know, seven, eight-year-old mind so far from England. Right. And I remember learning about, oh, well, Spain, it's Spain's and it's 
England's. Well, like, you'll, what? you'll still encounter this today. I mean, I um, a few years ago, I went on vacation to Anguilla, which is an island in the Caribbean that is still technically a British territory. And so, you know, you're flying into most likely St. Martin, which is an island that is dually owned by the Dutch and the French. And so you're going through passport control there, and then you're taking a little ferry over to Anguilla, and then you're showing your passport there because that's technically owned by Britain. I mean, these, this idea of these powers, quote, like owning territory is not over. I mean, look at America. We have Puerto Rico, we have Guam. You know, they're not states in the way like California and Massachusetts are, as we have seen in the past four years, especially. Um, so, you know, I don't want to talk about this as something that's history because it's truly not. Um, but back to the Commonwealth, <laughs> which is Britain's version of this. So 14 of these territories are still um, under British British oversight. And, and most... Um, but not all of these are members of the Commonwealth. So they have made steps to separate the Commonwealth from pure British oversight. Um, Somewhere along the way, it was, you know, spun off into what would seem to be its own entity, but we'll talk in a little bit about how and whether that's really true. So membership in the Commonwealth is voluntary. So that's pretty crucial and a very crucial difference between empire to that I think we should stress is that empire, not voluntary, maintaining a membership in the Commonwealth is voluntary. And actually two member states were never part of the British empire. So there is actually a bit of a cue to join. (laughs) So, um, you know, there are countries looking at this organization and saying, yes, I would like to be a part of that. Um, And 16 of these states voluntarily also retain the queen as head of state. So if you're curious, they are the United Kingdom, of course, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Antigua and Barbuda, the Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Grenada, Jamaica, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, the Solomon Islands and Tuvalu. So like this idea of her being their head of state is symbolic because these nations are not under actual British political control. But I really want to call out that 16 of these countries view her as their symbolic head of state. Um, Because when we talk about this idea of her being the head of the Commonwealth, and this is bringing it back, I know we took a little bit of a political governmental detour there with the history of the, you know, the mid 20th century, but we're back to the royal angle here now where, as I said, right off the top of this episode, one of her titles, one of her official titles is head of the Commonwealth. And it was voted on in 2018 that that would be held by Charles as well, even though it's not a hereditary position. So head of the Commonwealth doesn't automatically pass from queen to prince upon his, you know, his ascension to being king. But she is the head of state of 16 of these nations. And I really don't know how they extricate that concept, um, well, especially as... Well, you a question. Okay. So by all accounts, this is something that's very important to her. Yes. She takes the Commonwealth very, very, very seriously. And the dilution of the meaning of the Commonwealth is something that she's actively fought against and that's one of the reasons why I think it was so important for her that Charles take over but do you think that's because she comes I mean she took the throne 
60 years ago? Like... So all of this decolonization that I talked about happened during her reign. Right. But I'm saying when she took the throne in, what was it, 1952? 52 or 53, I think. So what did I say? 60 years? Yeah, that's more like 70 years. I think attitudes have changed significantly, but I, I wonder if maybe hers has not. I actually agree with you because let's not forget that her her debut as Princess Royal and, you know, the heir presumptive to the British throne was a speech in South Africa on her family's royal tour of a Commonwealth country um, or what would become a Commonwealth country proclaiming her mission to serve this, this organization essentially in these countries and... It's lovely, but I also well, question a, this a, idea that she's the person to do it or that her son would be the person to do it. Right? Like in her yeah. mind, I think it's a romanticized view of we're all coming together under But the, they're all coming together under her. Under which, her and which did, is the problem. And if given the choice, would they make that choice? Right. So this I want to I I want to I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to talk about this a little bit in a bit because you know this is this to me is the problem with the commonwealth it's such a nice concept but I don't know truly how they can honestly extricate the commonwealth from under the rule of the royals if they don't like actually extricate it from under the head the rule of the royals like her 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 title of head of the commonwealth it's it's kind of like head of state it's symbolic she doesn't run the commonwealth but it does carry a lot of weight and it gives a lot of the power within these 54 member nations to one nation especially since she's also the political head of state for 16 of these countries and like that is the part that i just really cannot wrap my brain around how that doesn't just continue empire. And I I think the Commonwealth is also really important to talk about politically with Britain because, um, as we know, Britain has voted to leave the European Union. Um, And many people have pointed to the Commonwealth as the natural home for Britain upon its exit from the EU. And this is based on the historical ties, the shared language, and their similar legal systems. But... (laughs) Where I kind of come to a sticking point on this is like, does that ignore the nature of Britain's historical ties with many of these countries and the reason for their shared language and legal systems? The reason they share all of this is because they used to be under control of Britain and when they gained independence, they were already speaking English as a major language and they just adopted the British legal system and political system in many instances. So... Yes, it might be a natural home, but I I feel like you really still have to look at why that is. Because as I said, most of the Commonwealth countries are former colonies. So yes, they're independent, but um, her status as both head of Commonwealth and head of state seems to me like an entangling of missions. Um, So for example, if you go to the Commonwealth's website, their stated goal is to, quote, work together to promote prosperity, democracy, and peace, amplify the voice of small states, and protect the environment. But I can't help think, but former Caribbean colonies like Barbados, retaining her majesty as head of state, still smacks of colonialism and this power imbalance that came out of it. Because 
maybe they really like having her as head of state and it's traditional and, you know, maybe it's symbolic for some of them. But I would also wonder how many of them really want this or care. And and all it does, I think, is contribute to this idea that the crown should hold the leadership of the Commonwealth, which, as I said before, is not actually hereditary. Right. To me, that just seems so sticky. And I don't know how to how they could really disentangle that if Charles continues in this role, um, especially considering, and this is really icky. So the older, whiter states that I mentioned, like Canada and Australia, that were the first to gain independence and sort of kick off this idea of a commonwealth, have commonly in the past been referred to as the old commonwealth and sometimes even referred to as the white commonwealth or the white dominions. Oh, boy. Which, what? Like, I, By yeah. who? Well, I don't know. And I don't know that they're still referred to that way. I think they might still sometimes be referred to as the old Commonwealth. But historically, they have been called out as being the member states that are white. Um, and the more recently decolonized nations, which are predominantly developing nations and non-white, are referred to as the new Commonwealth. And optically, like I, at least optically, if I feel like this indicates a tiered system within the Commonwealth, you know, like it's this snobbery of old money versus new money. Like, yes, we're all equal members of this organization, but these old members are actually really the power. It's, it's gatekeeping in a way, right? Not in a way. I well, mean, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's not gatekeeping in that they're allowed to join and they do have a stated mission of equality. But, you know, when you're combining wealthy Western, very white nations with developing non-white up and coming nations, I mean, I'm not sure what equal footing they're on. Like Britain doesn't really have thriving trade relations with a lot of these countries you know i mean that's the argument why you know they're not really a replacement for the eu is most of british trade is done with the eu so it it just feels like a glossing over of like more problematic elements of this i think um and also think about this so in the caribbean 14 nations including several commonwealth members are attempting to sue the british government for reparations for centuries of slavery and Britain is using jurisdiction issues arising from the Commonwealth to block the claim. Huh. So they're trying to use the Commonwealth as a way to avoid the history that led to the, like, to avoid atoning for the history that led to the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I don't know where that's going to go, but I, I have a lot of problems with that. Well, it's circular. It's like, yeah. we're upset that we have histories of slavery, which we've just outlined, have led to the Commonwealth. And they're saying, oh, but you're a Commonwealth member. Don't you right. want to stay that way? You can't You can't sue us for reparations. I, I find it interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's like, not to go back to it, but it's like Hawaii. It's like Hawaii is a state of the United States. But there are a lot of people in Hawaii that consider themselves an occupied nation. Because at the end of the day, what choice did they have? And if you, you know, and if you look at the Commonwealth as a similar coalition of sovereign states, many of their members didn't necessarily have a choice in joining. Right. It's a, it's a membership that you get, but the price of membership was really steep. Really steep. Yeah. And you can't leave. And there's just this issue of this 
unequal treatment between members. So one of the requirements to join and to retain membership in the Commonwealth is your human rights records. So notably, the Maldives actually left, I believe, in 2016 and just recently rejoined because they had to figure out some human rights issues. But there's patchy enforcement because there's also problems that have arisen in, say, Singapore, but Singapore is still allowed to continue their membership because financially, Britain has a lot of interest in having that continue. So exceptions seem to be driven by resources, which to me goes all the way back to this idea of like, you have slavery for resources, you have empire for resources, you have the commonwealth for resources. The mechanism is different, but I'm not sure the end is that different. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just sitting here thinking about how it almost feels it almost feels like a trap, sort of, where it's like right. you've been elevated out of your status as a as a colony, now you're a member of the Commonwealth and isn't that great? It's like it's like being at work when your boss is like, We're gonna give you a promotion and it's it's for people's jobs. You know, and you're like, great. And then they're like, but you're going to get the same salary because you, you know, you know what I mean? It's just It's like, a title change without a salary. Bump. Yeah. That's it's totally like, what it is. It's like, you're no longer a colony. Now you're a member of the Commonwealth, but you get no benefit out of it. Right. And many argue that it is a benefit though. And so, and it might be, I mean, there is an opportunity to network and do some trade that they may not otherwise get. I mean, these are very tiny well, maybe Island tourism, right? Cases. Like maybe it's easier for British citizens to go vacation yeah. in these places. I'm but sure there not, is not a benefit gonna... and, and, and there seems to be because like I mentioned, there is a line to join. But as we keep saying, membership was initially granted on the price of colonization. So how do you square that? And, and, and how do you square it with this sense of ownership that appears from the outside to exist in the royal family? I mean, yes, they do back that up with resourcing and publicity. So we mentioned the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, the royal tours. These are very valuable investments in these countries. But I think also the attitude towards the smaller countries can seem a little bit paternalistic, um, historically problematic or even racist. I mean, I think there's a very famous example of Philip on a royal tour in Africa. You know, they've, they've really laid claim for a long time to all the good that this does while still continuing to be problematic about it. Um, and and I just really don't know how they continue in that vein. And given this ownership that they are at least expressing outward, you know, shouldn't they also take ownership of the darker history? So notably, Harry and Meghan have begun to speak out on the need to address Britain's history and that of the royal family. You know, Harry recently said, when you look across the Commonwealth, there is no way that we can move forward unless we acknowledge the past. But their statements are still very vague and nonspecific. And also, I ask... What does it mean when they're the ones saying this, given their reduced role in the family? You know, they're not senior royals saying this. They're, they might be at liberty to say this now because they're on the outside. So yeah. it could expand beyond them, but it's still not directly from the person who matters, which is the queen. But that's what I was trying to bring up later or earlier is that her, I don't think her attitude, obviously I don't know her personally, <laughs> but... I, I when just, you were having tea with her, what did she say? I doubt that her attitude has changed along with the times. 
And I don't know if that's, you know, maybe she's just too close to it or, you know, as the head of the Commonwealth, you wouldn't want to, you would, you would want to focus on the positives as you see them and not focus on the negatives. But I just think about, you know, in the wake of Brexit and all of that, how it, it was, you know, said that she sees this as a way to strengthen the Commonwealth. But like you said, what is, like, where's the strength in that? What is the Commonwealth besides a publicity machine? But right. she, you know, she comes from a time, I mean, remember, her her father was the last emperor of India. I just, I, I just keep coming back to this of, like, when, when she goes, is a lot of this going to go with her? Well, I would wonder that, but... I mean, to me, I think an indication that it's not is that Charles, you know, is made her successor as head of the Commonwealth. And it's not like anybody was doing a whole lot to encourage, you know, him running opposed. Like he was essentially unopposed for this position, you know, and everyone kind of assumed he was going to get it. But I, that assumption to me is the problem. I think they're all aware of the problem. I think, you know, Harry obviously is by his statements, yeah. but he, like you say, he's limited. He can't come right out and say, wow, this whole network is built on a really dark history. Let's dismantle it. He's not going to say that. Well, I don't know if dismantling it is the solution because, you know, I think there's enough benefit of the member countries that they can just acknowledge the problems, try to fix them and move on. I mean, you know, Charles is, it's already decided that he's going to succeed Queen Elizabeth as head of the Commonwealth. I highly doubt William is going to succeed Charles. I just don't see that happening. I might turn out to be wrong in 20 years, but um, I just really would question the value of the organization at that point if they don't pick a head of the Commonwealth from another country. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Okay, I want to I want to kind of end before we get into a little bit of discussion here on throwing them a little bit of a bone. I feel like I have been really harsh on them, but I do think it's deserved. But they're starting to try. Okay, so the Queen's Commonwealth Trust website now says we have started a conversation in the Queen's Commonwealth Trust about how the Commonwealth's past of colonialism, of the subjugation of peoples, and the ongoing legacy of such historic injustice can and should shape the identity of the organization, how it develops its offer, and how it works in the future. And I want to bring this up particularly because this coming from, this is not on the Commonwealth's website, but it's on the Queen's Commonwealth Trust website. And Maybe that's a start of an acknowledgement from the queen in a very roundabout, arm's length way, but it's a start. I just question if it's enough. It sounds like a very vague lip service. It Yes, but it's on the website. <laughs> so I, I think it's tricky. I mean, I think this is one of your discussion questions, but I think when you're when you're at the tail end of a long history how much are you yourself responsible for atoning for it mm -hmm. and i think when you are the queen and you want the commonwealth to continue and you see a lot of positives the fear of acknowledging the negatives there's fear right because you're afraid if we acknowledge all the wrongs in the past is it going to undermine all of what we see as the good i don't i don't know the answer to that i can just see how that might be a fear 
but I think that they do need to do more. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's things you can do. They can, and you know, I know they do some of it, but you know, more outreach, more, well, reparations. I mean, we, that was the whole point of this article, right? Right. And it doesn't, you know, what does it look like? And that's the discussion we have in the United States. What does that look like? What is a feasible path forward? But I think you have to, you have to say, yes, they're owed. I think, I think you have to get to that point first. And I think that's what we might be seeing them move a little towards. Like that little statement on the website might be a little step towards the yes. Yeah, and I think so. We'll start with this question, where I think we have been asking throughout this this episode, where the British monarchy has still not officially acknowledged its role in the beginnings of the British slave trade and its sub- subsequent profiting off of that trade. So, do you think that they can responsibly lead the Commonwealth while continuing to ignore the roots of its founding? And I think we've landed on, of course, not. Right. I just feel like there's there's no longer an excuse. Right. You can't hide behind the past, that's the past, or we didn't know. No, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I do wonder. I'm curious to see if Charles takes over what shape the conversation takes and how how it might change. I mean, I really wonder because, you know, they're all, we, we do talk about this a lot, how they're, they struggle to move forward because they're so beholden to the past. Um, And sometimes that means like looking at the past through those rose-colored glasses, right? So, I mean, they're so welded to tradition, but then acknowledging the unsavory aspects of that tradition, does that break the tradition? And how do you move forward without your foundation of tradition? It's Right, well, that's a fear, right? If you have Queen Elizabeth II... And she's sitting on her throne on the, like, by holding onto it by her fingernails on, um, you know, continuity, tradition, constancy. This is the way it's always been. And you go back to Queen Elizabeth I, who essentially started the slave trade in Great Britain. Does that weaken your position? I could see that as an argument and I could see that as a fear. But I think, I think the right thing, I I just think it's really hard to keep dancing around this. I mean, people have danced around this. Let's go back to just even like when Harry married Meghan and everybody was making such a big deal about it because this was so great for the Commonwealth because the Commonwealth was finally going to have representation in the royal family. And if Mm -hmm. that didn't make them uncomfortable, I'd be absolutely shocked. Because before that, I don't think anyone in the royal family wanted to admit that they didn't have representation. Yeah, and it's it's really great that she put all their flowers on her wedding veil, but I don't know that that elevates their position in any way. I mean, it was, again, it's just lip service. And so going back, I think you mentioned you brought up before this idea of, like, what are their excuses? Um, so I really want to talk about this because... I think it's really important when we think about what the role of the monarchy is today. You know, this royal foot dragging, essentially what we talked about on abolition and their complete unwillingness to engage with their history and slavery. Do you think it's reflective of their stated 
aim of and their stated their constitutional position of remove from politics or do you think that they just didn't care and that it's a or, or still might not and that it's a convenient excuse not to reconsider too deeply so put a simpler way is the fact that the queen is not actually running the country an excuse to absolve herself of blame well i think it's it, that's a that's a complicated question because I think the position that they're in, on the one hand, like you say, they aren't supposed to be political. And if you consider this a political question, then there's no room for them in the argument. One could argue that the human rights aspect of it all is not political, it's just human rights. I, I think in the past, like if you go back to like Victoria and things like that, I think they lived very insulated lives they weren't necessarily aware of all of the harms that were being committed and that's because all all of their news and everything that they experienced was filtered through several several layers and arguably today it still is right, right. like i'm sure yes i'm sure the queen has an iphone and she can search the internet all she wants but the people that are coming to her and telling her and advising her on what to do are not saying any of this to her. It's an echo. It's probably an echo chamber. Chamber, of course. No, of course you're fine because you represent constancy and you're the head of the Commonwealth and you have been since 1952. So why would anybody want change? They haven't asked for it before now, when that's like not even true. But I, I don't know. I, I just I think, think I think they couch it, a lot of things as political that are arguably not in order to avoid having to take a stand. Right. I mean, human rights shouldn't be political, but yet they seem to believe they are. And, and we're not talking like today in the Commonwealth of, well, some member nations, yes, but in the, the, the role of the royal family, we're not talking about human rights abuses, but, um, well. you know, well... Depends on which members of the royal family, but uh, yeah, um, the Queen Elizabeth and Charles, the ones who are leading this organization, you know, they're not really perpetuating or actively doing anything bad, but this, I think it would have meant so much in historical context as an acknowledgement had they both stood up and said, the person following Queen Elizabeth as head of the Commonwealth should be an elected member from a member country that was not the UK, or maybe it could have been Britain, but it would not be a member of the royal family. I think this was an opportunity to completely disengage this concept of this of the royal involvement. I mean, they can still contribute financially in terms of publicity and press and really shining a focus on this organization without conveying to the outside world that they secretly run it, right? I mean, that's kind of the con like the idea. Like when you ask, I mean, I said this at the top of the episode, when you think of the Commonwealth, if you were saying, if you were playing a word association game and someone says Commonwealth to you, you probably say Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, and I think that's why Queen Elizabeth wants her son in charge because I don't think she sees it. She saw that as an opportunity to disengage. I think that's what she was afraid of. Don't you think? Oh, a hundred percent. I think you're. I think that. I think that you're right. I just think it was a missed opportunity, and so I wonder if in, well, 
I say 20 years, best case maybe, but you know, if in a decade or so when Charles is no longer king of England and head of state and head of the Commonwealth, who follows right. him? Um, but in the meantime, I would love them to just go on the record and acknowledge some of this past. I mean, look, Queen Elizabeth II is not responsible for the actions of Queen Elizabeth I, but she does need to acknowledge it. Well, because she has benefited from them. Yes. So, and I think that's the problem is like, and, and it's, this is the thing that I, I, I think the reason why we're doing this episode is because we've covered so many monarchs and none of this is mentioned. You can read a 500 page biography, a thousand page biography, and this is not going to be in it. A lot of this is glossed over because I think it's in some corners viewed as a different, a completely different subject. I think in some corners it's considered maybe because they were so in like a lot of the ones we've read, they were so far removed from actual governing of the country that the authors maybe subconsciously took the stand that they weren't responsible or even involved. Or when you look at a very narrow focus, like so we covered Queen Elizabeth in the context of succession, right? right? So we're talking about how she came to be on the throne, not what she did once she was on the throne. We barely covered that. So not to say that that's okay that we didn't look into this or think about it, but it's... It's not the focus. And I think that's why so often when we talk about royals, it is so easy to ignore this and to not even be aware of it maybe because so often the things that make them famous is not their exploitation of other right. races. It's it's something that happened in a marital scandal or domestic scandal or you know anything but this. Because I think the reason for that is historically, this wasn't scandalous enough. No. Right. You know, there were enough rich and powerful people doing the exact same thing that it wasn't worth noting. But now we need to reckon with it and we need to to call it out. And so well, that's what we're doing in this episode is saying, yes, these people are famous for completely different reasons. But just so you know, they did this too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the issue, right? It's like it's only notable if you went out of your way to speak against it. Um mm-hmm. You know, because that just almost implies that everyone else was part of it. Um, I I don't know. It's just interesting because we covered a lot of these people and it's just like, you know, I I read a full biography of Queen Anne and, you know, look at her father's involvement. I mean, she certainly had to have been aware of this and this isn't mentioned in any of it. Um, And her father was... Same with Charles II. I mean, you know, (laughs) he's... Only a couple of monarchs removed from Elizabeth and, you know, but his story is entirely covered in the context of restoration of the monarchy. Right, and so I... I but nobody ever really mentioned how they funded right. that. And I, I think it's just at this point in time, you know, a reckoning is happening all over the globe. And I think when, you, when you're looking at institutions like this that are ancient and have profited off things like that, you can't turn a blind eye. You have to admit that it exists. You have to admit that you've benefited from it. And I don't know what the answer is to move forward, but I think you know, what we're trying to do here is acknowledge it, bring it out into the light and say, this is also a part of the stories that we've been telling. Yes. Um, you know, and hopefully... God knows we have enough work to do on that in America too. But, you know, the one difference is that 
you know, we elect a new leader every four years. So, you know, for someone who's been... Well, in, Britain... Well... Yeah, sure, political... Britain elects a new leader way more frequently than that, of, it seems, but... The head of state but, is the, ha- head of state, the same yes. for 70 years. Well, like, they've had a leader... They've had three different leaders in the last five right, years. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I'm talking about head of state. It's been the same yeah, exactly, for 70 yeah. years. And I think this is a scenario where, obviously, attitudes have totally changed, and you would hope that... Mm-hmm they would change at the top as well, but they probably haven't. Um, And, you know, I think all of this plays into the intrigue with, like, Harry and Meghan. Um, You know, we've talked in the past about how the coverage of Meghan has been very racist. And I think a lot of the coverage, if not outright racist, was classist and snobbish and, and stems from these societal norms or you know this idea that like when you talk about how like Australia and Canada and New Zealand all were considered somehow better you know and the the primary skin color of their inhabitants is white you know it kind of makes sense why the press would claim they're not being racist but they don't see the history of the colonization that's coming out in every word that they write about how she's not suitable and also, I mean, Megan to me represents the biggest missed opportunity that the queen has ever had, where she should have been over backwards to address anything Megan was unhappy with. And I mean, within reason, of course, but I mean, at bare minimum, acknowledging the racism and the coverage of her and understanding the, the value of having, you know, someone who looks like a lot of these member countries on royal staff. If you're not willing to speak up against the racism of a member of your own family, I would wonder if you start to have members of the Commonwealth questioning what you think about racism levied towards your subjects. I'm sure they all are what all are wondering. I mean... Well, they maybe they don't have to wonder. I mean, it's yeah. pretty obvious. So. Well, I mean, this was like a good conversation. I think it's, you know, it is it is a heavy subject. It's a weighty subject. We're not going to sit here and claim to have all of the answers. But I think it's important to acknowledge that this is out there because the ramifications of it are playing out in the gossip. They're playing out in the succession. They're going to play out in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years as this monarchy tries to survive modern times. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that think that the monarchy is not going to survive the death of Queen Elizabeth. And I think that that may be true. I don't know. I mean, it, we've, we've talked about this. It survived this long. It's almost like a cockroach, you know, <laughs> like it's just really hard to kill. But I don't, I don't know that I believe that. I think Well, the point I'm trying to make is con- conversations no one is like excited. this are going to play into that outcome. Yes, we will certainly see some some changes have to happen, I think, in the next 30 years. Um, you know, and if the monarchy does survive, the public attitudes of a King William are going to be worth looking at, I think. So on that note, we'll, we'll wrap up. I know we've been chatting for a while on this. Um, we welcome any and all feedback on this. Please keep it kind. Yeah, and I hope this provided some food for thought. I'm going to link all the articles that I used as sources for this episode in the um, in the show notes on the website um, because I do think there's some good reading out there on this, some food for thought. Huge debt owed to that Slate article by Brooke Newman. So 
just want to call that out as the primary source on this as well. Um, we will be back next time with maybe a slightly lighter subject. Yeah, and there's going to be a little bit of a break in between this episode, or about a week in between this episode and our next one, because I am going off the grid. Good for you. No, I'm, I'm going to be literally off the grid, so. You're going to be in the woods. In the, in the woods. <laughs> no Wi-Fi. Spotty cell phone reception. I'm really unplugging, so. Yeah necessary all right well until next time until then monarchast is produced by me ali and me claire and our logo is by ryan cooney if you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out please rate or review us on itunes or google play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is we really appreciate it